Good morning. I was sitting at my desk this past week. I forget what day it was. And um, as sometimes occurs, a car that I didn't recognize drove into the parking lot and pulled into a space. The person got out. And I don't know they knew about this property. I don't think they come to hope and just sat on the bench. Serene. Looked at the pond and looked at the birds. Felt the wind. Just sat there and relaxed. Serenity. It's compelling. Some people come out here to the grounds to experience it. All of us are looking for serenity. That's why the serenity prayer is so compelling. Life does not feel serene. We try to look for places that we experience serenity, and serenity is elusive. It's tough to find and tougher to keep. Figure, Garden of Eden is a place that would protect serenity. That must have been the place. It was before sin occurred, before yeah, before the things that tend to rob us of serenity were present. Um, but even there, in a perfect world, serenity slipped away. The serpent was able to plant doubts in Eve's mind relative to whether God could be trusted to meet her needs. Did God really say that? God doesn't want you to eat fruit from the tree because you'd be like him. No. Trust God. You really can't trust God to... Yeah. We might have to have the handheld... Serenity. I'll keep on using this until it goes. Serpent was able to introduce doubts into each mind relative to the character of God. And because he was able to do this, serenity was siphoned off. Serenity was the first casualty of these doubts. Even before Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, even before they ate the forbidden fruit, serenity had already left the building. It's interesting, isn't it? In fact, the introduction and the entrance of sin came on the far side of the exit of serenity. Do you agree with me? Serenity left, then sin entered. That seems to be a pattern. The search for serenity on this side of that begins with facing things that cannot change. We find serenity in an imperfect world now where sin is resident, where all kinds of things happen, where we have to get away in order to experience serenity. 
Um, we experience serenity on the far side of frustrating limitations. Serenity prayer says, God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. We're going to look at just that piece. We're going to break the serenity prayer down. It's going to take us eight weeks to go through it. Some of it you're familiar with. Some of it you might not be. And so we're going to look at the serenity prayer in its entirety, break it down piece by piece. Um, the original language for the serenity prayer is a little bit different. This is God, give us the serenity. God, grant us. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Originally, Reinhold Niebuhr, when he wrote these words, here's what his version said. God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. It's a little different, isn't it? A little different? God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. According to Niebuhr, God doesn't give serenity. He gives grace. And the grace opens the door to serenity. This one, let's think about that. Let's think about because we want to find serenity. Okay, now we have to find grace. Because God gives us the grace to accept with serenity, so we've got to back up a little bit, don't we? If we're going to look at serenity, we've got to look at grace. And what we're going to find out is if we're looking for grace, then we've got to find humility. God gives grace to the humble. Look what James says. We've looked at this verse when we talked about faith lifts. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The serenity bleeds away because we end up being at war with ourselves. We end up thinking about this and that and the other, and we want this and we want that, and we can't get them both, and serenity kind of leaves. It goes on to say, or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if we're going to find serenity, we need to experience grace. We're going to experience grace, what we're told scripturally, is he gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? If we want to find serenity, we've got to find grace. If we want to find grace, we've got to experience humility. Therefore, as we search for serenity, our first stop then is to try to figure out humility. How do we become humble? What is humility? And uh, Humility uh, talks about the process whereby God ends up developing humility. And one thing we see is that humility is not something that we can teach ourselves. It's something that we learn and that God teaches us. And we'll see in Deuteronomy and different passages the kind of things that God does in order to teach us humility. And you know why we have to figure that out now, right? Because in order, if we get humility, then we can find grace. And if we can find grace, then we find serenity. So that's the way it works. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you. Moses is speaking to the Israelites at the end of their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The first one was early on at Mount Sinai. Now 39 years had passed. And most of the people, there were only two that survived the trip. And he speaks to the people because they need to hear it again. 
And here's what he says. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Now, that must have been weird to hear. You know, if you read through the accounts, it seemed like they walked in circles. You know, they did this, and then they went here. And what it indicates here is that God led them in the wilderness. They weren't cast adrift. They weren't left behind. God led them. And he goes on, led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to, there it is, to humble you, to humble you, and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether you, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you. And it's going to give some things here that God did. How do you humble somebody? And here's what it indicates. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. We've talked about this before, but discipline is not punishment. There are two words, and this is not the word for punishment. And there's a difference between discipline and punishment. There's a different motive and a different focus. The focus of discipline is on future correct behavior. When discipline is appropriately administered, there might be some difficult things, but those things are brought to bear in order to promote what is right. That's discipline. Discipline is focused on future correct behavior. Punishment is focused on past incorrect behavior. When it's punishment, it is balancing the scales of justice. You did that, and because you did that, you're going to need to experience this. Okay, and this, okay, that's, that has its place, but it's not the word discipline. Discipline is about future correct behavior. And the motives are different as well. The focus is different, right? The focus of discipline, future, the focus of punishment, past. The, fo- the, the motive for punishment is justice, fairness, but the motive for discipline is love. And that's what it says. God develops humility as a means of child-rearing. In fact, the specific, the literal rendering of the word discipline means, if I have a child with me, I'll show you what discipline is. It's to be with a child. If there's a child here, it's to come down to the child's level. That's to be with a child. That's what discipline means. When God does that, and because he parents us, think about mothers and the things that mothers do to try to develop character. God does those things, and he causes hunger. What do you do to cause hunger? How do you cause hunger? Withhold sustenance. You used to be able to eat at this time and eating these things. To cause the hunger is to remove that experience of being able to eat. Causing hunger. Hunger is one of those things that you can't live without. It, not food you can't live without. Hunger is an alarm system that God developed alerting you to a need that you cannot afford to neglect. 
because you'll die. That's what hunger is an alarm system. And there's some things that you can get rid of. You know, there's desires that are more or less intense. Hunger is one of those things that you can't forget for long. And God causes us to hunger. What that means, in order to humble, God will expose you to needs that you will not be able to set aside. It's not just physical hunger it's talking about in the text. It's emotional hunger. It's the desire for companionship. It's the desire for love. It's the desire for security. Basic desires. And what God will do, apparently, he will cause you to hunger. And that means your social world won't be what it needs to be. Your physical world won't be what it needs to be. Your emotional world won't be what it needs to be. And it will surface needs. And these needs are not just passing fancies. They will be deep. He will cause you to hunger. And as you're waiting there, in order for these needs to be met, you'll try to set them aside, but they won't be set aside. And the normal way you're experiencing these needs being fulfilled is not there. He won't change. He won't change. She won't do it the way she should do it. It's just not happening. And then God will meet the need in an unexpected way. He fed them with manna, which neither they nor the fathers had known. He met the need in an unexpected way. I didn't see that. I had no idea. I was languishing in this need. I couldn't get rid of it. And all of a sudden, this came, and the need wasn't as dramatic. He causes to hunger feeds in an unexpected way in order to teach us that man doesn't live by bread alone. We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know what that little, the literal text says? It says, Man does not, to teach us that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of God. It doesn't say every word, everything. What comes from the mouth of God? Food? At some point, yes, everything comes from God. But God doesn't just provide our physical needs. He also says things to us. And sometimes the things he says have greater entrance into our minds when we're hungry, when we're looking for a way to stabilize ourselves. God teaches us to rely not just on the food that he speaks out, but on everything he speaks out, the promises that he speaks out. If life were always nice, we wouldn't look to God intensely. Would you agree with me? The fact is we don't trust God until we have to. I wish that wasn't so, but it is. And God knows that. He, he develops humility by causing us to hunger, then feeding us in an unexpected way, and he teaches us that we don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Serenity is not an easy process. The road to serenity is anything but serene. Anything but serene. Serene. It would be nice if God could just give us serenity. That would be a great thing. And again, I'm not blowing up the prayer. Because if God grant us the serenity, yeah, absolutely. 
But the way God gives serenity, he doesn't give serenity directly. So he gives, according to Niebuhr, grace. And in order to receive grace, he teaches us humility. Humility, grace, serenity. Um, He gives grace to the humble and the process of learning humility apparently hasn't changed much. Look what Paul says in Philippians 4. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, how about if we could write this book, The Secret of Being Content. How many copies, if we could write a book like that, how many copies of that could we sell? The Secret of Being Content. What is the secret of being content? We're going to answer that question, but one thing we're going to find, we learn it in places where we have what we need and we don't have what we need. I have learned, Paul says, whatever the circumstances, to be in need and to have plenty. So the place we learn that secret is having all we need at one point and not having all we need at another point. It's life is mixed up that way. It's it's lurchy. You know, there's sometimes you're flowing and things are coming through, but then there's sometimes you're hitting walls and and it's the unpredictability of that that feels so destabilizing. I mean, if we could know, okay, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you're going to feel lousy. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, then you're going to feel good. Sunday will be a blessed day. You know, always. But if, if, if you knew that, if you knew that, okay, it's Monday. Let me see what Monday. Monday is a good day. So it's going to be a good day, too. But that's not the way life is. It's unpredictable. And that's the problem. But that's the path on which we learn. That's also is contentment. I, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's the secret. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me stuff. No, that's not what it says. Is it? I must get that wrong. I can do everything through him who gives me, yeah, not stuff. We tend to think that stuff will provide contentment. If I had a better job, better house, better kids, better me, I can, what Paul says, he learned, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So now we have another thing that we have to figure out. Strength. Secret of serenity is it comes from strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This text is used to support unlimited living. I can do anything through him who gives me strength. I can do anything. I'm bulletproof. That's not what it means. It's it's not indicating that I can I learned content by by getting what I want. The secret of contentment is that it can be there when you don't have what you want. There's a couple kinds of contentment. One is based on getting what you want. That's a pretty good contentment. You know, there's a better one. How about this? How about this? A contentment 
that comes on the far side of not getting what you want. How about that? How about a contentment that can be there even when you don't have what you want to have and do what you want to do and feel what you want to feel? How would that be? A contentment that didn't depend on circumstances. That's a contentment that's supernatural. Natural contentment is, okay, I have what I want, do what I want, feel what I want, I'm content. Like the sitting on the bench for a little while, that's content. But what about sitting in the office at a job you don't like? Is it possible to be content there? Look into the water. How about looking into a family situation, pulling up into the driveway, and knowing the turmoil that you're going to face when you walk into the house, or the emptiness you're going to face? What about that place? How does that happen? How does that happen? You know what Paul figured out? It can happen. But you have to know what to look for. You can't look for stuff. You don't look for serenity. You look for strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Um, What kind of people experience strength? Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at what kind of people experience strength. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you know why they're saying that? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. I think you understand it. I I understand this. When you don't have what you want to have or do what you want to do or feel what you want to feel, what do you naturally think? Naturally. Well, there's only two reasons why this would be, right? Either he's unaware or he doesn't care. Right? I mean, I'm dying here. This is not a fun place. I don't have my needs met. I have what I don't want to have. I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I'm feeling what I don't want to feel. Now, there's only one or two reasons why that would be so. He's unaware of what I'm going through. And so, you know, he's up there being busy. You know what I mean? He's taking care of holy people, spiritual people, people unlike us. He's either unaware or he doesn't care. He sees my need, but he's just not going to do anything about it. You can understand that, can't you? You understand why they're saying what they're saying? At this point in Israel's existence, life wasn't good. And they're saying one of two things. My way is hidden from the Lord. He doesn't see. I don't know why he doesn't see, or he does see, and my cause is disregarded. He's looking at it, and he's brushing it aside. Uh, He goes on, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. What it's saying, God understands where you are. And why you feel what you feel, why you do what you do, and why you have what you have. But 
he's not disregarding you, it says. He, he hasn't fallen asleep. He doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need five hours a night. doesn't need two hours a night. He doesn't sleep. There's never a time where he dozes off and misses something that happens to you. It never happens. He doesn't grow tired or weary, and it's not that he has a mental lapse. Oh, I forgot to look at you. I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, I just, I just kind of, you know, I didn't fall asleep, but it was just like I, I kind of didn't know what was happening there for a minute. But no, you know, God never, He never has lapses like that. He understands what you're going through. He does. And okay, what is it then? Is He disregarding me, or it goes on? He gives strength to the weary. And increases the power of the weak. What kind of person experiences strength? The answer? A weary one. A weary person. I'm tired of having to face this, face that, do this, do that, feel this, feel that. Weariness? I think some of you are thinking, well, I, I think God is far away from me because I don't really praise him. I'm kind of weary. You are exactly where God is. If you can embrace your weariness and stop blaming yourself, stop blaming somebody else, just admit you're weary and tired. And it's because of him, it's because of her, they're involved, but it really is between you and him. And if you can embrace weariness, you know you'll find you're embracing at the same time? Grace. Because he gives strength to the... How many of you are in a position, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Some of you are really tired. This far from him. This far. He's right there. You know what God's address is? At the end of your rope. Give strength to the weary. Strength. Grace, humility, serenity. But serenity is not something that he, he gives in the middle of things that are difficult. He gives in the middle of weariness. Look at the last verse. It's appropriate on Mother's Day. It talks about how God is like a mother eagle. Been to La Crosse, Wisconsin. I talked to Kent and uh, loves La Crosse. You ever go through La Crosse, the Eagles? You know, the cliffs? You know, when you. Nah. What will happen, I guess, is that eagles will nest on cliff faces. 
you'll create this nest made out of sticks and stones and rocks, fur. And then it describes, so you can picture a little eaglet hanging out in the nest, nice and cushy, comfortable, serene. Mom's going to go get me something to eat. She's going to come back and give it to me. I'm not going to have to fly. She's going to hang out here. Did I tell you how cushy my nest was? Did I mention that? Did I mention the fur? Nice it is to be able to have her leave and come back and bring food and put it in my mouth. It says, in the desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste he shielded and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him, no poor God was with him. This is describing what a mother eagle does. Uh, this is so, so here's this little eaglet hanging out in the nest, and what the mother does is it would be the virtual equivalent of taking a mattress and making the springs come up through it. Some of you know that kind of mattress. And you know, I can't lay there. I've got to lay here. This is not those Tempur-Pedic dealy willies. This is, this is not body forming. You know, there's that place in the mattress. And if you get to it, anyway, that's what the mother eagle will do is make rocks and sharp things stick through the fur. Uh, 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 what? Just can you can you can you make the bed like you used to make it? No, no, the way the way it used to be. She won't do that. She'll stir up the nest. She'll make the rocks and the sticks and the stones poke through. Not comfortable. And and not only will she do that, stirs up its nest. Stirs doesn't just mean make uncomfortable. And this, listen to this. And again, if you've gone on if, you know, cliff faces, she tips the nest over. Tips the nest. So here I am, just grabbing a few winks. And then all of a sudden, it's, you know, the virtual equivalent of the bed, you know, you, you put it, you know, the bed goes... As doing one of these things where, you know, oh, and then you, what's going to happen? Free fall. This isn't good. Okay, what am I supposed to do with Oh, I know, I'll fly. This isn't working. She stirs up the nest. Eaglet's in free fall. No idea where the mother is. It's just looking down, but you know if you could see the mother? What it talks about hovers over its young. Hovering. Looking down. That eaglet thinks it's completely off the mother's radar. Thinks it's all alone, being buffeted by winds. And then if danger is around, or if and we give actually ground is dangerous. It's not the fall that kills the landing. <laughs> She'll swoop down and carry the eagle gently on its pinion, carrying it back up to safety. Oh, that was nice. 
<laughs> Let's do that again. And you know what she'll do? She'll do that again. And she'll do it again. Stirs up. Hovers over. Catches and brings back. Till, oh, that's how she teaches her young to fly. Um, is God stirring up your nest? Frightening. Free fall. The security that you had is gone. Not there. You're exposed to things, terrors. It's frightening to be where you are right now. Frightening. Where's God? He's abandoned me. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. If you could see him, he's hovering. In his gaze, it's difficult to learn to fly, but he swoops and brings, teaching how to fly. Um, this is the image of mothers. And that's why we honor mothers on Mother's Day, aware of their children. That's why we appreciate mothers. Mothers keep their kids in the center focus. Um, it's also why we do communion. When you're falling, communion gives us an opportunity to reacquire. Here's what communion does. Has us look at you did not spare us because what we tend to think is God's holding out. God holding out on you? Not holding out? Disregarding you? Unaware? No. He who did not he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? I'll ask it again. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Is God holding up? Let me hold let me ask you a question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Is God holding out on you? Absolutely not. What's he doing? He's stirring up the nest. He's hovering. He'll catch and bring. Communion brings us back into contact with the promises of God. So what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to have some music. Come up and get the elements, the bread and the juice. And I want you to think about God being your mother, father. Stirring up the nest, hovering, carrying. Why would he do that? To humble you. Why would he humble you? So that he can strengthen you and grace you. And as he does so, you will discover the secret of being content. Surrender. Father, thank you for your character and your care. You understand what happens when we get weary. We feel neglected and ignored, and that's part of the process. Learn, though, to think about you, to speak to you, to cry out to you. And even in the middle of turbulent circumstances, slowly, gradually, progressively, slowly, we learn to be a little bit more at rest. It's not a sudden thing. It doesn't overwhelm us. 
we don't change overnight, little by little, slow but sure, you start to change if we make room for your commitment. Help us to do that, to learn serenity in the midst of difficulty by holding on to the realities of our life and holding on to your hand at the same time. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs>